Vaccine. I'm Steve, and joining me, he's back. It's Jack Eason. Good to be here, Jack. You know, I we were we were kind of dragging you a bit last week and talking about how you you couldn't be on the show because you were mourning the death of the Queen. And uh, I I thought that that joke was going to be kind of a one week thing, but this shit won't stop. Like right now, we are recording during the. Uh, national time of mourning where we're supposed to be radio silent. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty sad when you lose a queen. Um, but I think they've got a great replacement lined up with Prince Charles. Um, you know, I think he's going to be great in the role. He's going to do fantastic stuff. He's going to spend a lot of money. He's going to probably backhand a lot of servants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wish him all the best. I has think, you, uh, has he ever you married know? one of his cousins though? Aren't they all cousins? I don't know. Does it matter? Is there even <laughs> genetic distinctions at this point? I hope not. I would, would expect nothing less of them. <laughs> I, I think the most fucked up thing that's come out of all of this is, I mean, everybody was really excited when, like, the royal beekeepers had to go tell the, like, the beehives that the queen had died, which, of course, is pretty fucking funny. But uh, for me, the real treat is all the, all the grocery stores had to turn off the beeping noise on the little thing that scans the the food when you're checking out at the grocery store. So like if you go to the fucking Tesco and try and buy a sandwich, the machine can't beep because it's disrespectful to the queen right now. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, there's someone who proposed online that they might be doing some laundry today and were asking if it might be respectful so long as they only hang out black clothes. And <laughs> honestly, they might have been joking. But they also might not have, because the royal beekeepers did have to go and officially inform the bees that the queen was dead. Yeah, it's it's honestly it's impossible to tell. It it really is. I I don't I don't know what's respectful. What about and the beeping? Is is uh, offensive? I I'm not sure. This is a question you're going to have to pose to Tesco corporate. Yeah, Queen <laughs> Queen Elizabeth has no time for the sounds of commoners and and commerce. This is absurd. People of good breeding and character are just handed the things they need. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's dead, though. We should double the beeping, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think the most amusing thing to me was that uh, Nintendo had to delay their stupid presentation because the new Zelda game is called Tears of the Kingdom. And uh, oh, wow. apparently that was just a little too much for uh, the UK to handle. Hit a, hit a little too close to home. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of tears coming from the kingdom right now. Uh, it's just Jesus tragic, Christ. tragic stuff. It really is. I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, Jack. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. But like <laughs> I say, I really think that uh, Charles will absolutely take over the role with absolute aplomb. He seems like just a putrid, fucking wretched human being. So, you know, I think I think they've got it covered. Yeah, I, I was kind of hoping that she would live longer just because, I mean, he looks like shit and I figured he would kick the bucket before he got to be king. But uh, I mean, he's, I guess he's finally getting it. So I just wish he'd hung on for like three days and died in 9-11. Uh, that would have been, I mean, the days are well, easier to remember. Right? Oh, 100%. <laughs> I mean, but, you know. Like, that would just be absolute, just uh, the perfect zero point for all online humor for decades, probably, to come. We could run with that for forever. I do think it's kind of wild, though, that 
everyone in the royal family looks like shit, right? Like sure. None of none of the like none of the princes are looking great. Uh, some of the worst hairlines imaginable. Uh, just th their teeth are just like bucking out of their mouths. It's like they're fucking, you know, their incisors are trying to remove themselves from their faces. Uh, th their skin is melting off of their skulls. How is it possible you are this just rich and powerful and influential and yet you're not pulling the trigger on, on Botox or basic self-care? How does this happen? I mean, why bother, Steve? Uh, what, uh, which is the one uh, I don't... I can't keep these fucking ghouls apart, that's for sure. But uh, I, there was the one, it, probably Harry, I think, who was like, you know, always in the tab, well, the sexiest man alive, Prince Harry. I'm like, what? <laughs> Look at this fucking guy. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like it goes... Well, I feel like William is... Uh, William is the bald one that I oh, think yeah. the tabloids William really... William the worst... Yeah, Prince yeah, but Harry I think is that's... like, you're, you're a ginger and your hair is like just desperately trying to flee your body, but uh, you're still holding on to something that resembles a hairline and you're, you're okay. Is Prince yeah. Harry the sexiest man alive? No. Is he like functional? He's like a, like a, uh, he's probably like a Midwest eight and uh, like a, a New York six and a half. That's what I'd give him. So. Yeah, yeah, I feel like William did. There was there was a push to try and, and pass him off as sexy, but you know he got married, and they were kind of like, oh, we'll just give up on it then. So they had to go with Harry. But yeah, Harry, reportedly, if he does look better than the rest of it, that's because there's a strong chance his dad isn't Prince Charles. So yeah. you know that's that's a whole whole other thing. Yeah, well, I just say we've we've been duped by these fucking inbred idiots for. Like the last well, America has America fought a war years. to get away from these people, and now fucking Harry and and Meghan Merkel are like to have their own Netflix production company that has produced yeah. nothing. I believe. Yeah, I, I don't. We should not, as a nation, be contributing to their vast wealth. Nor nor should we. Uh, I believe this uh, this completely insane narrative that they're attractive human beings because uh, that that is the height no. of. Doesn't work. Misinformation. Well, and I, and I thought they, you know, maybe maybe they were going to crash and burn because, you know, they, they leave the royal family because, you know, racism and general shittiness and all that good stuff. And then I was like, all right, maybe they'll just disappear. And nope, nope, they get put up in a mansion by none other than Tyler Perry. So... We we can blame the uh, we can blame Tyler Perry for the Royals infiltrating America. Truly a sad <sighs> state of affairs. But good, yeah, good uh, stuff. Prince Williams is he sexy or does he look like if Milo Yiannopoulos was in a burn ward? It's impossible to say. Uh, the answer is yes. He's certainly pale. I think yes. we can certainly all agree on that. Yes. So pale has never seen a dentist. Those are the only things that we're completely sure of. But with that uh, special episode this week. Because, Did we even introduce Myros? Uh, no, no, I know Myros so. is here. Myros, how okay, are Myros, you? I'm so you're sorry. I, I got stuck on the Royals. You know how I am. I, I am here. I, I even had a, a good story about uh, how uh, some beefcake has, has just moved into my apartment complex. Uh, and I got home from a family wedding last night. And this beefcake is just out front of the apartment. And it, this, is, this is a standard like Midwest town apartment complex. There's no yard. It's like a fucking parking lot. He's just standing out there, oiled up and shirtless in the middle of the night, like shadow boxing in the front yard. I'm like, <laughs> the fuck is happening? That's fucking awesome. <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't know. 
uh, things are taking a turn. See, I enjoy these things because uh, we have a park across the way, so I see a certain amount of that, but at least it's, you know, it's a park, so, you know, kind of yeah. like a, it's a game field. But one time, the best thing that I saw there was these uh, two two huge, huge black guys, um, shirtless, rippling, um, you know, oiled up, and one of them had, like, just a little parakeet or budgie, you know, I don't oh. know which kind of bird, and he was just kind of had that perched on his shoulder on his finger, and another dude was just, like, a much, much smaller man was following them as they, like, walked around and posed and just, like, lumbered, the best way to describe how they were moving, and was just taking photos and video of them, and I guess... I guess something online was happening over there. Some content was being generated. Wow. Absolutely, absolutely incredible to see from afar out in the <laughs> wild. That's incredible. You know, what, you know what there are two of within like a block and a half of my apartment? City parks. This would be a, a good place to go get your swole on, Fred. <laughs> the beef pose? I don't know, man. I mean, I, I kind of want to just stand in front of my house and, and just do some poses now. <laughs> Well, the thing is, you own a house. It's not like six other people's house. That's true. Yeah, that's the coolest thing about home ownership is like you can you can enter the beef zone anytime you want. Like just fucking <laughs> pose it out, man. Who's going to tell you no? I mean, I, well, apparently you could you could do that anyway. It's just, you know, some fat guy might get on a podcast and be like, this is a strange thing. that happened. Can we get the beefcake on the pod? I got to I got to get the lowdown on like what his life is like. Is he like yeah, what, what do you think MMA? movies he likes? You know, yeah, what, I don't know. He's, he's only been here like maybe 10 days. Uh, well, I'll have to start a conversation yeah. with the man. All, all I know is he's, he's basically existing under the cover of night, and the only thing I saw move in was, was literally weights. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking cool. I'm like, this guy's fucking great. It's super, super wild <laughs> to be moving in weights because technically, like, moving home is like the best time for, for weightlifters because then everything mm. is a weight. Like, you can actually, there's a real practical application there for the first time ever. Yeah. Um, but it's real funny because you still have to separately move your weights as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of an interesting conundrum there. Yeah, well, let's do let's do an episode on like our favorite Mark Wahlberg movies and we'll have him on as a guest. Sounds I mean, stuff is crazy. When I was in Louisville, I, remember, um, I was introduced to my, my next door neighbor, immediate next door neighbor. And he just uh, happened to mention in conversation that uh, MMA had paid for his house. He was a, he was a, a cage fighter. Whoa. Super chill, nice dude. But yeah, like it just like, and you could tell he had like the cauliflower ears and stuff. And there's a super nice guy, but like, you know, just looked like a regular guy. Hadn't, you know, considered, hadn't visualized him when I first met him that he might, you know, be pummeling people's face into mush and getting his face pummeled into mush professionally. I think like if you get punched in the head enough, you just, it kind of takes the edge off probably. So yeah, that's it. I'm a great introduction to living in America. Certain is like, you know, how do I explain to my, my 70 something year old Irish mother that my, my neighbor is a mixed martial arts competitor. (laughs) Explain to her this, the octagon and its rules. I think this guy has lost the uh, the designation of cool regular guy uh, just on the basis of the fact that he's a lunatic shadow boxing out front of my apartment. Yeah, that part <laughs> I don't get. Because I mean, yeah. you you can do that inside. There's certain yes beefcake activities that necessitate the outdoors, but I feel like. There's there's really no reason for him to be out there. And it's not even like uh, maybe if I, you know, shirtless, uh, oiled up, kind of do some boxing stuff, like some women will be like, hello or something or men or, you know, whatever he's into. Because I've been to your apartment complex, Myros. This is not 
you're a little tucked away here. I don't think there's any women looking for beefcakes. There's no beefcake cruising going on. No, and and you would think you'd want to do it midday. Then you get to get better eyes. I mean, on he's looking for women with a certain mystique. Yeah. I well, think. and if you ask yourself, was he wearing headphones or using a very loud Bluetooth speaker? And uh, let me tell you, the answer is Bluetooth speaker. Oh, he was listening oh, to music while he was oh, doing it. Oh, yeah, it was happening. <laughs> oh, I was because I was I was I was imagining him doing it in silence and doing like the noises as he was you know do like like mac from it's always sunny in philadelphia like doing the, the sound <laughs> effects for his own combative actions no way man we're cranking up the iphone to 10 okay what was he we're, listening we're, to we're turning up the beats pill and we're listening to calvin harris that's how it goes down it was uh it was some sort of generic hip-hop i i couldn't tell you i'm not familiar enough with the, the modern <laughs> tracks you know but uh but, well, that's you know. great that's so good Man, what a, what a beautiful week for everyone. Well, as I said, special episode. Uh, we have a new patron, and you know, if, if you become a patron of Optimism Vaccine and you go to the highest level, what does that highest level get you? Well, it gets you a fucking episode. You get to dictate what we do, and uh, that could be anything. It could be something torturous. And yet, but you don't you don't get to dictate what we talk about for the first fucking quarter of an hour of the episode. Apparently, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he asked for any of this. Yeah, got your ass. You thought you were getting one thing. Instead, you get beefcake chat. Deal with it. Well, he this man's from the UK, I believe. Uh, he's paying us in pounds. I'm sure he really wanted that update on the royals. You know? Yeah, he needed he needed the royal update. And uh, I mean, and who knows? He's probably going to listen to this episode because he's one of those people probably like waiting in line for 36 hours to see the queen, you know? So I'm sure that uh, lights. If, if the patron uh, ends immediately after this, uh, <laughs> just like, this episode, we, we know maybe he was in the queue. Yeah, well, what, well that's what, do you, what he's got. That's what he's got. You believing really? He's just maybe he just just paid us to get his episode, then he'll fucking get out the door. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is all I wanted. I don't need anything else. <laughs> Well, he, he did something nice because, I mean, if this was me, I would probably do something that would deeply upset Adam Myros. And uh, no, he actually asked us to do some 90s Jackie Chan and specifically some movies that I think are uh, not frequently discussed. And really, this fits in very well as an optimism vaccine episode, which makes me think like maybe we should stop dictating our own episodes because uh, turns out our patrons are better at it than we are. Who knew? It's almost like I said that exact same sentence last episode. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are, are you having regrets about watching My Son Hunter? I, I had some immediate regrets, I must say. Listen, I, it's not my fault you lost your Nantucket last weekend, all right? <laughs> we're just, we're just trying to get through things. Uh, but yeah, this, this, was, uh, this was fun because 90s Jackie Chan is a very interesting period. Because you've got the iconic uh, late 70s into the 80s Jackie Chan, where he's basically the king of Hong Kong action. And uh, because of the American home video market, he gets some traction in America, but not like mainstream success. But he's, he's someone that you know who he is. And for me as a kid, I knew who he was actually because there was an NES game called Jackie Chan Action Kung Fu, which is really good. And that's kind of how I discovered him. And then his movies would frequently play like on TV, dubbed versions of them. So you got a little bit of exposure, but he never had a huge 
crossover into American cinema, which isn't to say that he didn't try, uh, because he had a, he had a few American productions in the eighties that just ate shit. So the nineties were where he made his real push. And I, I think his, his breakthrough was probably 1995, I think was rumble in the Bronx. And that's where he, you know, got into a partnership with new line through, uh, I think it's Samo Hung's production company. And then they were able to get some American distribution and he became a little more, more well-known. But throughout this period, it's kind of odd because there's things like Rumble in the Bronx. There's things like Mr. Nice Guy that we're going to discuss. And these pre, we'll call them pre-Rush Hour, pre-Hollywood Jackie Chan movies where they, they did get American releases. And then there's some other things where, you know, it, it's right in this period where you would think, you would think, they would get American distribution and they would, you know, be on that level of Rumble in the Bronx or, or Mr. Nice Guy. And they're simply not. Uh, and, and that includes things like Thunderbolt. And oddly enough, the movie, which if you go to IMDb right now, you type in Jackie Chan. And when you look at the IMDb, like what is he best known for movies? Number one is Who Am I? A movie that I had never even like thought about until we had to watch it for, for this episode. So. Uh, who knew? And I don't think that really got any sort of significant American release. So just a very odd period of Jackie Chan simultaneously breaking into American mainstream culture, but also not at that like rush hour, big Hollywood star level. And then Jack, I think things were probably a little different for you too, because even though he wasn't getting distribution in theaters in America, I'm pretty sure he was still a substantial star in the European markets, right? He was, yeah. Um, it's it's kind of difficult to break out, though, because, I mean, I didn't grow up, like, necessarily, like, a huge Kung Fu fan. There was always, like, from the UK particularly, a real um, kind of, like, active VHS trading community for martial arts movies. So there's, like, there's a real rich subculture of martial arts via VHS cut-ups and weird edited versions in the UK. Mm. And Jackie Chan certainly was obviously hugely well-known through that. Um, so it's still kind of like paired along that he was well enough known and bankable, but really, yeah, Rumble in the Bronx was kind of the film that, because of its America, that it was taken up in America, that did really well over there, um, kind of became the main banker of like his his mainstream breakthrough like prior to that obviously people were like all about uh drunken master 2 and drunken master 1 and stuff like you know mm, like those story. 80s films and and police story was was you know certainly uh, you know a lot of those were available on dvd i you know i'm kind of trying to trace it the the through line of it i remember like drunken master the original one i saw pretty early on but um Really, I guess through like the the one that actually struck me is one we're not going to be discussing today. But first, Strike. I had that on VHS uh, at sometime in the nineties, which is odd because it's one I I actually rewatched it in the run up to this, and it's very enjoyable. Really enjoyed it, but for some reason I have I not watched it since VHS. So <laughs> it's kind of kind of cool to come back to it. But yeah, um, it is it is a weird phase a period in in Chan's. Uh, film career because we're, we're about to like transition from Thunderbolt like Rumble in the Bronx was his big US breakthrough but it was actually a, it was nominally it was still a Chinese production mm -hmm. it was shot natively in, in Cantonese mostly I mean it was shot natively in whatever the hell language the people spoke but you know Chan sp uh, spoke in Cantonese himself 
uh, and then they just overdubbed things as as necessary. And obviously, mm-hmm. the US version was an edited version, and they redubbed everything in English. Um, Thunderbolt then is obviously still a Chinese production, but with more of an, uh, an international aesthetic. And then Mr. Nice Guy, which we'll move on to his very next, his next film. Not his next film, I guess he made first strike in between that, but Mr. Nice Guy was his first actual English language film, which kind of paved the way towards uh, Rush Hour as, you know, the Jackie Chan breakthrough in the West movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another interesting thing during this period, too, is you have to remember, like, his his star is rising and he's getting bigger than he's ever been, but also he's kind of reaching a point of physical limitations where he can't exactly do what he used to do in the 80s. Uh, I mean, not to say that what he's doing here isn't incredible, but he's kind of reaching the point where, you know, there's only so much gas left in the tank. This is a guy who's broken dozens of bones. And by the time we get into his American breakthrough period, he's, I mean, he's in his 40s, right? This is not, he's not a spring chicken. So, yeah, uh, there's kind of a nice... There, there's kind of a nice energy, I think, to these later 90s films in that he he's able to recycle a certain amount of his choreography from earlier in his career. Like he's it's well, it's not exactly like it's not like he's completely copy pasting, but a lot of this stuff is like, a, you know, approximations of things that he'd already done in like Project Day and Police Story back, you know, 10 plus years ago. But he's really like able to lean into, you know, if it's less death defying and less absolutely ludicrous the stuff he's doing like he's really able to lean into the comic persona in these and there's a really like the comic elements of the kung fu stuff here is i think just fantastically shined up particularly mm-hmm. in in mr nice guy and, and who am i i mean he's he's you know the the jackie chan that really kind of comes through is is really polished here even if he's not like even if throughout the entire each film you're not looking at going like holy shit that's an insane thing for a human being to do so yeah. yeah, kind of, kind of a nice, a nice setup. But yes, I mean, this, this is not the police story. You hurl himself off a building, exactly. He kind of still does, but um, <laughs> yeah, a few, a few, a few more safety lines or thing. He hurls himself off like a sloped building rather than just straight down. Sure, sure. The little yeah. things, little things. Yeah, and and then the other thing you get here too is you know he definitely leans into the the comic persona a little bit more, and I think the ideal Jackie Chan character kind of comes out in Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, but then also you have the ideal character in the mind of Jackie Chan, which I think that comes out in Who Am I? Uh, because well, you have this African interesting native. push and pull between, you know, Jackie Chan as his star rises and he gets he gets more control over his productions. Like, what what does that look like? What does Jackie Chan, like, writing for producing starring directing you know all that what does that look like for jackie chan versus what does it look like when someone else is telling him what to do and there's there's kind of this cool tension that exists in a movie like mr nice guy that you might not see as much really in uh, a movie like who am i where that's more clearly a jackie chan driven production um, what are you guys talking about? I thought we were talking about Thunderbolt. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, we're, we're doing th- the overview. Everyone's just it, fucking it avoiding funny. Thunderbolt. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> we're, we're talking about how, you know, with the, the comedy cultivated thing, and then we, we've actually got to rein ourselves back in because Thunderbolt is 
pretty uh, kind of an odd doc in his uh, 90s lineup oh, because completely. it was it's cause, like cause he, violent as shit and pretty right, serious yeah. <laughs> it, and, and i think it's it's interesting because um i mean chan in the 2000s particularly like really by the 2000s he was very much like acknowledging physical limitations he was like i can't i can't keep doing this stuff rumor is that uh jackie chan has like a ladder uh hanging above his bed and he needs that ladder hanging above his bed, basically, to get out of bed every morning. His his body at this point is so absolutely murdered from the years of, of torturous con- treatment that he basically needs that to, like, use his handheld grips to lift himself out of bed every day. And then he has to do warm-up stretches and stuff just so he can walk. You know, like, it, it takes him a long time to get going now, because, like, which... Not exactly surprising, considering oh, sure. the many, many things he's done to himself. So, you know, by the by the 2000s, he kind of acknowledged that and he leaned more into um, dramatic roles and specific, like he really wanted to extend himself as an actor. And, you know, he took and was more taking a backline stuff like, say, New Police Story or the Shinjuku incident where he would uh, specifically play edgier characters in films that were less, you know, martial arts oriented. Um, Thunderbolt kind of is like an early pre-runner to that because I think one of the things that defines Thunderbolt as production is it was shot right after Rumble in the Bronx and he famously broke his ankle in Rumble in the Bronx in doing a big jump. You they like, look they have footage of it. It's great. You can see him break his ankle in the outtakes at the end. <laughs> in the American version played over by Ash's Kung Fu super upbeat rock song. Uh watch a man break his ankle. Um so he'd broken his ankle and it wasn't fully recovered by the time they did Thunderbolt, which meant that very unusually for a Jackie Chan film, he's in the major kung fu elements in this film. He's very obviously doubled out throughout a huge amount of it. He couldn't do the stuff himself, which I think made him. This was kind of a preemptive attempt by him to lean into dramatics, you know, try to like heighten his acting roles, you know, and kind of heighten the stakes, uh, which he would do again, as I say, in the late in the early 2000s. So like he's kind of he couldn't do it here. But it means Thunderbolt is just kind of it's an odd film because like you mentioned, it is it's like hard or rated violent elements in it, like the gunfights and stuff are much more brutal than one would associate with with his regular stuff. And then um. Yeah, he's he's got like his his two sisters are kidnapped and they're like horrifically traumatized. Um, there's an enormous amount of slow motion to capture their trauma. Very peculiar <laughs> film because then it, because it's still like it has a meat cute in a Mitsubishi factory in the opening scene. Oh sure, where, you know there's still with the, a character who's not in the movie. She really? comes back later on <laughs> for like is, one scene. For what, yeah, we're we're dramatically or we're narratively mis- necessary. She shows back up to just give him a racing team. You know, uh, Jack, well that's one thing we've learned from these three movies is Jackie Chan must always have multiple love interests. Oh always. yeah, that, that is the only consistent thing. Like. Every single movie that Jackie Chan did in the 90s, like there's at least 27 women who want to sleep with him at any given time. And there's <laughs> no consistency in who he's actually interested in. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because he seems to exist completely like separate of romantic interest. Like in so many of them, he comes in, he has a girlfriend and she just gets horribly abused by other people. And at the end of it, it's like, is this working? Who knows? Like he's I don't know. Chan is not he's not a great uh, romantic foil i think he knows that but it just sort of gets set up as like all the way back like maggie chung and police story and getting Mm -hmm. yoinked off that moped you know it kind of set up a a whole history of jackie chan's horribly treat like being a woman around jackie chan is just not a good thing 
Yeah, it you, seems kind you of will stressful. be horribly abused. <laughs> See, Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt is really like difficult to describe. Like, I, I don't know what the hell the plot of this movie actually is. Like, what is Jackie Chan? Uh, what I mean, what's his character? Uh, he seems to work for like a fucking junkyard or well, something. His character's like a name is driver. Jackie Chan. That's another consistent thing across all three of these movies. Well, it's just Chan. I'm Chan sorry. photo. He, he, he's, he's Chan in this, and then I think, I think he's just Jackie in Mr. Nice Guy, and he's Jackie Chan in Who Am I? Yes. Yeah, although uh, no one ever says Jackie Chan in Who Am I? He's, he's credited on IMDb as Who Am I? But uh, yeah, it is in the credits of the film. <laughs> Jackie it's Chan and Jackie I, Chan. I, I don't recall. I watched the, uh, the longest cut, the Japanese cut of Who Am I? Which is oh, 10 Jesus. minutes longer. Yeah, no, which, which is super <laughs> funny because right, when we came up to this, I was like, Who Am I? I'm like, that's a short one. I remember that's like an 80 minute movie. That's in my memory. That was like, it's it, that's a short one. And then I found out about this, the Japanese cut which is like the full cut of the film and i was like oh i better track that down check that out and that's two hours long i was like holy shit it's two hours long that's like how do you stretch who am i out over to two hours and then i found out the movie's actually an hour 50 in every other region and i've just i guess because all i ever remember about the movie every time i watch it and i enjoyed the movie but i only ever remember the final fight i've just my brain has just morphed into like it's it's a really short movie so it's kind of curious that way, but... Um, uh, it's not knows? that short of a movie, no. It, it is kinda... not. None of these are, actually, which is kind of something, I, you know, and I guess it's good in in a sense, but, like, watching a bunch of these, like, they're all, like, an hour 40, an hour 50 minutes long, um, which is kind of, you know, in the in their full cuts, the, the US uh, editions are cut down a bit, but it kind of, like, there's a real shaggy dog element to Jackie Chan movies which I think goes all the way back to you know that he just walk around the place and just find shit and he's like oh this looks like we could do some weird stuff with it let's just make up a scene to yeah. do that and and like it does it seems like no matter what happened like it's like okay now we're spending like lots of money and we've flown everyone out to Australia to film this and it's still like here's a funny looking wall I wonder how we could jump off this Oh, completely. And I, th I think Thunderbolt of, of the three movies we're talking about today, like it has the least amount of Jackie Chan was walking around in a location and said, "Ooh, I want to jump off of this. Like it's, yeah, it seems the, the most ankle. contained. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, probably broken ankle. Uh, and, and, but part of that too is, uh, I, and I think this is why kind of Thunderbolt suffers a little bit for me is because it doesn't play into Jackie Chan's strengths all the time. So all of these films are, like you said, they're, they're kind of shaggy dog movies. There's a lot of bloat and a lot of convoluted nonsense where you're like, why the fuck is this happening? And it, it's, it's really a roller coaster ride because there are points during any of these films, and I think Rumble the Bronx is similar in this way too, where you're like, what the fuck are we even doing? Like, what, what, who are these people? Why is any of this happening? What, what, what's going on? Yes, and then all like, of a sudden, is <laughs> there is an amazing action sequence, and you're like, okay, I have, because of this incredible action sequence that just played out in front of me, I have completely forgotten all the bullshit that I was upset about previously. 
Right, like what is like what is this movie? Like literally, like what the fuck is the plot of this movie? Like Thunderbolt? <laughs> yes. I have like, I, I mean there's how is Jackie Chan even involved in it? He's like a fucking mechanic and then all of a sudden he's street racing. Okay, so so the opening montage suggests that Jackie Chan is he's a he's training to become a race car driver. Yes. So he's a race car driver, that's what he wants to be. But ultimately, he lives with his father, who's played by legendary director Chor Yun, who shows up in a number of these films. Just to point that out, it's kind of a cool thing. Um, and and he runs a mechanic, they're like a mechanic's shop, and, and it's huge, and they live for some reason in shipping containers stacked on each other. Don't know why yeah. they chose <laughs> that, but do. that's how their garage well, is you built. Choose it, you, you choose it because it makes a cool action sequence. It does, it. <laughs> it makes for a very expensive action sequence. Um, so so he's, he's they're, they're in a garage, and but they help the police to tow shit to cut down on illegal racing, which I've got to say, in terms of, like, Jackie Chan often, and Jackie Chan's politics are a topic, often a sore topic uh, when brought up. I mean, he's, he's now vocally allied with the Chinese Communist Party and anti-democracy in Hong Kong, and frankly, I don't know enough about all that stuff to really say anything about it, so fair enough. Jackie Chan is always identified as, like, a force for good and law and righteousness in his movies from police story onwards, even as he often can allude towards some degrees of corruption and problems within that. But I've got to yeah, say... So along with the multiple love interests, one of the staples here is he almost always like almost looks to camera in the conclusion and goes like hey kids don't do drugs yeah, he's got like a very like, G.I. Joe make the world a better place but I've gotta yeah. say like Jesus in terms of allying with power being the guy who drives the tow truck for the police has gotta be one of the least sympathetic people <laughs> in the universe he may as well have just played a fucking parking inspector uh, in terms of like getting the public behind him really difficult role but yeah I mean this story is weird in that like I say it leans in it's very violent when it is violent it's got a much more dramatically charged storyline than the others in terms of like there's supposed to be real stakes of like his his sister's well-being and this vicious brutal criminal and it still resolves in like the, the hijinks otherwise are still very Jackie Chan-esque it's still sort of like you've got to win a you've got to win a race uh, you know, why do you have to win a race? Interpol and the CIA are like on the tail of this vicious criminal, but the only way they can arrest him is if you beat him in a race. Doesn't God. like that's not a story at all. That doesn't make no, any goddamn and sense. And his involvement with the fellow is bizarre to begin with. Like he just like ends up driving a random car that is street racing against old Cougar and. Uh, <laughs> I, for some reason, this this makes Cougar very interested in, in racing him. Uh, which, again, he's he's some illicit super criminal uh, that Interpol is after, and he's challenging Jackie Chan's character to a race. Uh, you would not imagine that that would in, involve like uh, some officially sanctioned racing circuit, <laughs> but yeah. in fact, it does. It, it's like. A rally race, which it feels baldly like Jackie Chan. It, what, the jumpsuit he's wearing has his fucking name on it. I'm like, he just owns like a rally team. And it's just like in the movie. I mean, it's it's a funny thing. It's like when you're watching Italian movies from the 70s, right? That J&B whiskey bottle shows up and you just cheer. Like, it's just, it's, it's just 
branded into the film. Like you just, the second you see it, like, oh, it's like I'm home, I'm wearing a nice sweater, right? <laughs> Same thing when the Mitsubishi logo shows up in a Jackie Chan movie. It's like just crass corporate sponsorship just out in the open. But this movie, more than any Jackie Chan movie almost, and I mean, there's other movies where he shows up with like straight up like weird custom design concept cars that Mitsubishi have clearly given him to show off. Like City Hunter, I think he drives around some absolutely daft nonsense you know uh you know this one is technically more toned back but more than any others absolutely is like mitsubishi presents jackie chan in thunderbolt like it's it's absolutely <laughs> shameless and it's very confusing and and i guess that's my problem with this movie and i, I still mostly enjoy it but the, i think there is a real disconnect here the meandering shaggy dog element of jackie chan's other movies is very kind of like amiable and sort of like laid back but this movie eschews those qualities it doesn't want to be that but it still borrows enough of it and does it like if you want to not do that then you have to build probably like a coherent dramatic script with normal like uh, what you say like dramatic stakes and goals it and it just doesn't have those either and it still has like literally the pretty japanese uh, owner of Mitsubishi or daughter of the owner of Mitsubishi just shows up at the end and gives him a new car because he needs one to beat the drunk baron cars. racer. <laughs> yeah, and like why? Who, like this, the who's the criminal? Like he's he's super good at racing cars, but he's also an international criminal. How do those things interrelate in any normal way? There's there's no concept at all. Very, very peculiar um, film, all in all. Yeah. It's got some really good stuff in it. I mean, there's some really great car effects in this. It is, but, it, you know, it's still nuzzled or muzzled by stuff like, um, firstly, like I say, there's this amazing big fight in a pachinko gambling parlor. Oh, man. But, That's great. You know, and there's, there's a ton of really great stuff in it, but, like, also, Jackie Chan is clearly doubled out. And, I mean, Jackie Chan uses stunt doubles. He always has for certain things for convenience and you know his stunt team have people who are just good at stuff like sometimes if he's doing a big tumble flip or whatever he'll double himself out because just one of his guys is really good at it and it's you know it's one of those things that's fine but like if every shot you know when it goes to a wide angle it's just not jackie you know it's kind of like why is it's that's the whole jackie chan brand and then the finale the big race with the crashing cars and the smashing and most of it's sped up footage because and apparently this happened because they first they were going to film in japan and then it was raining too much in japan so they couldn't film but they are understandable nature intervened so they went to malaysia but then the malaysian government caught wind they were going to be crashing a bunch of cars and they were like well we don't want anyone injured be safe kids so they they had to just slow everything down and speed up the footage which not a great action dynamic it, it's it's very kind of you know i mean there's a lot of big explosions and you know formation driving and stuff but it's, it's just not very exciting it's not yeah. very, and it's not very poetic on screen to just watch a bunch of cars like like someone just accidentally leaned on the fast forward button in the editing booth <laughs> right yeah I, I the finale certainly lets this movie down but i really liked a lot of what led up to it despite you know it's not it's it's through and through a very flawed movie the villain is fucking ridiculous and can't act a lick it's not dubbed by anyone who can act a lick either it, it's just but it, it it has this very familiar well-executed sort of 80s action feel like when his love interest is 
watching him sitting in this like fake cockpit just like slamming this gear shift all over the place like some sort of machine and i yeah the whole shootout when uh when cougar is escaping prison there's this there's a lot of stuff that that reads uh familiar both to hong kong and american action that that really works yeah. and yeah it all leads up to a rally race that makes no goddamn sense at all but i almost <laughs> I almost got to like that because it's just like, what the fuck could this possibly, how could this be in your script where you're like, all right, his two sisters are kidnapped. He's got to race the criminal. Uh, that is what we're leading up to, like a big fast and furious dumb fuck street race. It's like, what, what, no, what, we're, we're what just going to do a NASCAR race. And it's like, yeah, what, what makes no sense about it? <laughs> what makes absolutely no sense about it? It would make sense that they need to tease him out by going to the race. Okay, so sure. he's he's out. They need to tease him out. But why does it matter if Jackie wins the race? Like that doesn't make any sense yeah. whatsoever. Like other than no. to truly be a better driver than this shithead who's like an awful person. But you know th there are some uh, you know elements to this that I thought were fun. Like for a big win for me is Michael Wong playing a loudmouth CIA operative who's terrible at his job is that at one point he like does his like holds his gun and that like gangster sideways thing that was like really big in the 90s and it's extremely funny to me for some reason um <laughs> but also i think that there are the one of the big action set pieces in this is the destruction where the guy just decides to like mess with jackie chan a little bit by uh destroying his entire uh shipping container home and just it's just they're swinging around shipping containers and dropping them and stuff. And it's an enormous action set piece. I mean, this looks logistically nightmarish, <laughs> yeah. um, like absolutely insane. It doesn't necessarily read, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's more of like a, to me an American style action sequence in that it's much more about like the expanse and the expense of doing this rather than you know seeming you know, big and and like dangerous on camera. Although I'm sure it was quite dangerous. Um, but it's an interesting one to me because I think Sammo Hong did the action choreography for this film. And this looks to me very much like maybe the origin of the end, the, the conclusion to Choi Hawk's knockoff, which also involved a bunch of shipping containers. And Sammo Hong was also coordinator on that. And that was also apparently an extremely dangerous film shoot where the, you know, all the it was filmed. I don't know if it was actually raining or if they just made it rain to make it look cooler. But like everything was slippery and wet and it was metallic and they were just like like jostling shipping containers back and forth on each other and apparently a lot of people nearly died making it which you know is you know standard for it's always fun for hong kong things which is why truly knockoff is like a true hong like maybe the truest western hong kong film like it has all the danger of hong kong but kind of like the veneer of a normal hollywood film thinly stretched on top uh, so it's like it looks like Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black when he steals the guy's skin. It's like, you know, it almost looks like a human. But no, there's something much more alien and insane uh, dwelling within, which is why mm. knockoff is amazing. And we love it. Um, there, yeah, I think I think uh, Thunderbolt has a lot of really cool stuff in it. Um, but yeah, just as a film, it's it's just a little tricky for me because it doesn't have affable Jackie Chan energy. And instead, it's something a little bit more charged and, and intense. But then it kind of fizzles out at numerous points within the movie otherwise. So yeah, it's kind of, kind of hard to work out what to make of it. I and kind of understand. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think this might've been released in the U S prior to rumble in the Bronx. 
um, that really? it did get some kind of release. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think that it might have been, even though it was certainly shot afterwards, because as we mentioned, Chan's ankle was broken for much yeah. of this. Hence, I, yeah, I, I, I guess know, but folks are driving. Agree with you 100%. Like, this feels more like, I don't know, if Jet Li wanted to make a car movie. It doesn't seem like a Jackie Chan <laughs> movie to me. Uh, yeah, it, and it just it just doesn't have that, that magic that uh, some of his later kind of crossover American Hong Kong films had. But um, it, it's interesting then kind of kind of looking at Mr. Nice Guy, and I mentioned this earlier, but I feel like Jackie Chan's character in Mr. Nice Guy is sort of his ideal character like this this is who he wants to be in every single movie this is who he wants to be viewed at just his like public persona because famously you know uh, when he did start to break into america he he got offered some jobs and i think one of them was uh demolition man the sylvester stallone movie and the role that eventually went to Wesley Snipes, uh, Stallone wanted Jackie Chan to play the the bad guy, which I, I don't even want to think what the fuck we, that would have been. It would be absolutely most, like one of the most insane what ifs of film history is absolutely oh. Jackie Chan playing Wesley Snipes' role in Demolition Completely. Man. Because, I, I mean, I've seen Demolition Man a hundred times and I, I cannot, like there, <laughs> there is not a single part of my brain that can conceive of what Jackie Chan playing that character would look like. So yeah, but, I can't but, imagine it works. <laughs> no, no, it. Absolutely I, I would imagine there, there'd be a lot more of uh, of Wesley Snipes' character uh, almost getting his fingers crushed and staring at his fingers and going like "ooh" and waving them violently in front of him. Like there'd be a lot more <laughs> of, of classic moves like that for sure. Nearly getting kicked in the nuts. And oh, stuff definitely, like that. definitely. But uh, Jackie Chan's whole thing is like he's always the good guy, but he does this amazing fight choreography comedy thing where he's almost reluctantly kicking your ass, right? Like he, he just, he's like, I, I don't even want to fucking be here, but also I'm so much better than you. And I'm just going to completely wipe the floor with you. And that's when he really shines. And Mr. Nice guy is completely built around a character who embodies that. And I think that's what makes it so fun. But also at the same time, as we mentioned before, these these are these are pretty shaggy movies. And if you want to talk yeah. about some movies with some just just bizarre shit outside of the actual action set pieces, you're gonna find it here. But then the action kind of offsets everything. It's so good at wiping your mind. And the action is so good that I believe Jackie Chan is like permanently banned from filming in the Netherlands now because of the chaos that he created. Uh, you mean it, in Australia? Uh, Australia, no, Australia. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, when they was, told uh, the house, yes, yeah. they, they weren't asked back again. Yeah, so he, <laughs> n no more going to Australia for Jackie Chan, unfortunately. But yeah. oh, that's a shame. It works so well with Richard Norton. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fun. I really, I really like Mister Nice Guy. It, it, and absolutely, I think it's one of the, the like. I mean, if it comes down to me, like picking, you know native english language jackie chan and it's between like mr nice guy and rush hour like 100 mr nice guy is such a better movie for me than than rush hour like 100 percent mm -hmm. and a lot of that comes down to the fact that it is still very much a hong kong movie parading around in english also there's and no chris tucker yeah the no, lack of chris tucker helps yeah 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 for for sure but it's got it's just got a lot of the like the um 
What we say, like the shaggy qualities, Richard Norton, who of course is like a constant villain in in Hong Kong movies and stuff. You know, actually speaking in his native Australian, which is uh, unusual. I mean, last time we saw him, I guess, was him trying to do an American accident in China O'Brien one and two, which apparently <laughs> underused him. Um, you know, but this just this is absolutely kind of Chan running with Sammo Hong, of course, directing, uh, kind of running on kind of they've got all the comedy beats down perfectly they're kind Mm. of just looking around for new things to kind of charge kind of define each fight you know it's not like okay we're just gonna be on a building site now we're gonna have a huge truck we're gonna drive through a house you know but like the general choreography this isn't like anything you haven't seen jackie chan doing before but it's just wonderfully attuned there's some really fun fights and things in this and then all of the westerners in the movie like the women in the movie look absolutely bewildered to be there which is and there's a weird amount of violence against women in this movie and not in like a mean spirit around yeah it's not like mean spirited like you know in a lot of other movies where you talk about like violence against women like a specific sexually charged like malevolence it's just this movie like the women just get smacked around so much in the midst of all the other scenes where people are getting smacked around but like it's just unusual because it's like normally if if a movie has a you know a woman who's repeatedly in the fray getting beaten it's because they're like a central action character and they can hold their own and it's part of it but this is just a pure collateral damage i don't know what they were doing (laughs) just kicked in like stomach over and over again thrown through shit off shit all the time just Kind of strange. Um, I think it was Colin who pointed out Sambo Hung was maybe going through a divorce. Maybe. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about this, though, because his wife actually appears uh, in one of the early scenes. She is actually sitting in um, uh, Joyce Kredensky. I can't remember her surname. So it's just um, Sambo working through some shit, maybe? Yeah, possibly so. Like, she is, in, she is actually in the audience for one of the early Jackie Chan cookery segment bits, but I don't know. Maybe they... Maybe there's some stuff going on there because it's odd. It's it's strange. But, you know, it's also it's kind of part of what these movies are, which is like they I, one of the things I really enjoy about Hong Kong movies generally is they do things I can't explain. And they're mm-hmm. interesting that they're done. And that's kind of fun. You know, that's sort of it's very easy to get complacent when you watch particularly a lot of genre films that you kind of you know where all the pieces are. Hong yeah. Kong movies are really good at shaking that up. And it's kind of just including things that are like very peculiar singularly odd mm-hmm. well, well this movie does that for fucking sure <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why the hell is any of this in the movie frankly like there's <laughs> you've got you've got the, the base plot you know jackie chan you know he gets this mcguffin he accidentally becomes in a possession of this tape of a crime happening and so richard norton and his goons are after him right and uh you would think that would just be the plot, but also there's this second gang, the demons who are kicking around for God knows why. <laughs> and yeah, he, he not only has the reporter the, who would, who would probably in an American genre film be the love interest, just this reporter we runs into who delivers the tape to him accidentally. And then there's also <laughs> like his roommate who wants to have sex with him. And then some woman who he's brought in from China who he's dating. And it's just like, there's this wonderful are- <laughs> doubling and trebling. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like rumble in the Bronx also had like a second gang for no particular mm-hmm. reason. And then it had like an A site, like him and Anita Moy who had a, in Rumble in the Bronx had like this completely non-sexual relationship in the film, which makes sense for them because they have like 
from Drunken Master 2 and stuff. I mean, she played his aunt in that, uh, you know, in a familiar role, you know, a comedy thing. It made sense there. But here, yeah, it's very confusing. There are three women, uh, all of whom are coded as potential romantic interests yeah. and aren't. Even the girl he's he's engaged to nominally. Yeah, like, there's there's, there's no like no, like, <laughs> there's there's no sexual tension or or any kind of, like, chemistry between these people. The whole thing has big first draft energy where no one took a second pass at any of this. And even like, I mean, not to get too cinema sins on this thing, but it's just fucking hilarious that the whole movie is, is centered around this MacGuffin, this tape. And no one stops to think for a second that you could possibly make a copy of a VHS tape like that has never entered <laughs> anyone's mind for even a moment. Even a fleeting fucking moment. And, and we, it's just we haven't even mentioned the family element too, because there's also Jackie Chan's surrogate family with these two precocious kids who have the videotape, so you'd think they'll they'll be endangered at some stage. And his surrogate father Who's like who, Australian Italian or something. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, who, yeah, who, yeah. Very, who very pointedly is like, I taught him not to fight, but to cook. So it it, it like goes out of its way to be like well, this guy shouldn't be able to fight all these vicious criminals. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why he's a, a super karate master, but uh, like oh, he's a nice guy. Karate kid school of training. He's so good at cooking that it just transferred immediately. He's just really yeah. good at fighting as well. That yeah, sort of stuff, like shaggy stuff, works a little better for me in Thunderbolt, I guess, because it is coded in such like a, a familiar action trope thing that it's like, I, I can buy that this like, hardened man who's good at everything can defend himself against these these crazed criminals and it also i'd say uh anita yoon is the most effective actual love interest in any of these three movies in, in thunderbolt like mr nice guy is not interested this is this is a fucking kids movie <laughs> it's a, du it's a <laughs> like, dubious distinction certainly to be the the most successful female role in it the jackie chan movies are are curiously and really always have been um like maggie chung does really well in in police story because she's maggie chung uh, it really it really helps when you're just you know charismatic and good on screen um but yeah a lot of the women have it's one i need to rewatch actually a little after they made gorgeous which has shuke as the female lead which is like maybe one of the greatest actresses of the modern you know 21st century cinema but got her mainstream start uh she had a career more as like a sex nymph person in you know films like sex and zen one of them i don't remember which and the admittedly fantastic viva erotica but you know she's in that um it's one of her great like maybe her first real dramatic role but you know it's kind of a, an unusual film about category three filmmaking but yeah generally speaking women in jackie chan movies are not asked to do a lot and not given a lot of space to do anything mm -hmm. more so i think even like samuel hung has better and i mean really mr nice guy is a samuel hung directed film i don't know how the two function on that because i know jackie chan has a tendency to take over uh famously yeah, I, drunken master to him and lao Karlung fell out pretty seriously on that film over disagreements i, I feel like this is uh, uh, probably you know uh, caused a lot of tension with sammo and jackie chan i would imagine but this feels like a sammo hung movie and i i think jackie chan actually like his his best moments with the exception of police story are when he has other people to tell him to basically shut the fuck up and, and kind of challenge him on things and push him in different directions. And even the way this is shot, like this, this looks like a Sammo Hung movie to me. Like 
just his use of just close-ups with wide-angle lenses and the way the camera moves and the way the action is staged. It feels like a Sammo Hung movie. When I think of how Jackie Chan likes to stage his action, it's almost like Jackie Chan wants to just set the camera up and then step back and do his thing and the camera can watch him. Whereas when Sammo Hung in Mr. Nice Guy is is directing these action sequences, it's almost like the camera is pushing against Jackie Chan and sort of dictating how the action is going to flow. And yeah, it's it's good, I think. I mean, not to say that there's anything horribly wrong with the way Jackie Chan directs action sequences, far from it. It's just, it's refreshing to see him in a different light and see him kind of challenged in a different way. Yeah, I think definitely, you know, Sam Wong is... is Probably more that Jackie Chan got a lot of the, the plaudits in the West, but Sammo Hung is arguably the biggest name in action choreography of the latter part of the 20th century, probably, you know. And like him and Lau Kar Lung probably actually are maybe the two most important guys in that field. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything here is looks great and works fantastically. And there's there's just such a clarity to the action and... Like I say, I, th- I think it's just really fun in this to see Chan being able to play into comedy a lot, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny, like Adam, you talk about how you have difficulty parsing why he's so good at fighting in this movie. It doesn't really explain it, whereas, you know, it seems more somewhat more self-explanatory or, or you know, kind of makes sense within the context of Thunderbolt. But I mean, ultimately, he's really good at fighting because he's Jackie Chan, you know? Yeah. You just, yeah, you know. So you show well, up to the yeah. movie and it's kind of like, you know, this is just what he's going to do. He's going to run around and bumble around, but be incredibly fast and athletic and get out, get into a load of trouble and then somehow get out of it again. Well, the, the third movie, and not to, not to we're moving on, but when we get into the third movie, that is when it, it kind of clicked for me to, to go like, oh, you know, Jackie Chan is like, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And if yes. I were watching an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and he started like fucking ripping a tree out of the ground, even though he was a school teacher, I wouldn't be like, Huh, why is that happening? Unrealistic. <laughs> you just uh, kind of roll I, with I it. Think that's the exact yeah. analog. I mean, Jackie Chan is a star first and foremost, which I think was one of the things he he bucked against a little bit. You know, he wanted to do more acting, but for the eighties and nineties, he was really he's, he's Jackie Chan. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. his two thousand, his post two thousand career is a lot more, in a lot of ways, a lot more interesting and varied for him as a performer because he's not able to rely on doing the Jackie Chan action stuff, but also arguably, you know, you're a star. You've got that persona that's you'll never supersede it. You'll never outdo it. You know, if you want to be a great actor and you want to give great performances, I, you know, great that he can go and do it. But at the at the end of the day, most people are still going to want to tune in for 80s, 90s Jackie bumbling around, you know, thinking he's hurt himself and running away gasping because he got away with it or whatever, you know, while, while being chased by hordes of people for reasons he's not aware of, which mm-hmm. is the quintessential Jackie Chan plotline. Yep, exactly. Uh, and, oh. and we will we will get into who am I in a second, but I, I just want to say before we stop talking about Mr. Nice Guy, the finale of Mr. Nice Guy, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, before before we dove into that, I wanted to highlight Sammo Hung's uh, ridiculous fucking cameo in this as well. But oh, that's uh, also great. Yeah, uh, uh, I, mean, I, think, I think it's officially is is an unfortunate cyclist. 
Uh, well, in, in IMDb, it's just cyclist, but it might oh, have been I feel, in, in the actual, I feel like everywhere else in like Wikipedia and other places, he is he's uniformly referred to as like unfortunate cyclist. Like that was the official credit. That's a shame. That I thought guy it was a on movie. a bike. That's or, yeah, <laughs> in absurd loud jumpsuit. Yeah, it rocks. Sam yeah. Hung. Yeah, you may not have had quite the career of Jackie Chan, but you know. Yeah. Not only to downplay one of these, the importance of martial law, but you're right. Yeah, only one of these men had a, a, a CBS show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, you know, um, I found out, I feel like Stanley Tong, a uh, director who didn't, I don't think he directed any of these films we're talking about, but he directed, I think, First Strike in between, and he directed Super Cop, which, you know, so he's, he worked with Jackie Chan. I think Stanley Tong was involved in martial law, but I also never realized this. He directed the Leslie Nielsen Mr. Magoo film. This is <laughs> oh, no, wow. this is no relation to anything else in this podcast. I merely put this in because I was absolutely amazed to have recently learned that. So there you go. Well, it doesn't surprise me. That's the sort of movie that kind of shares an odd DNA with Hong Kong action where the pratfall comedies, um, Mr. Magoo, like walking a tightrope or something. Cause he can't see where he's going at night. It's just, yeah, it, it, it does in many ways sort of oddly parallel, like especially Jackie Chan action. Um, but, you know, it's worse. It's not choreographed nearly as well generally. But, yeah, this thing, uh, once we get into road grader territory, whatever the fuck this set is they're using for yeah, Richard what, Orton's what exactly house, is this? Like the an abandoned shopping Jackie mall Chan, uh, What? Uh, he's, like, driving the biggest construction vehicle I have ever seen in my entire life. Yep. And, and then he just drives it through a mansion. And uh, yeah, not, well, a quote unquote mansion. That's not any fucking house. No, this it's, is a it's balsa wood freestanding structure. Uh, it's it's I think. just this gigantic building that they just set up cameras in, and then Jackie Chan drives the, the biggest truck you've ever seen through it. It's an absolute childhood fantasy. It's like why why do twelve year olds love Jackie Chan? And this is the answer why because it's like he's he's making a movie out of the things that that like a child would concoct in a sandbox. <laughs> I, what I love about it as well is they introduce it in like the set in the first scene of the movie, Richard Norton playing Giancarlo. There's a lot, a lot of Italian elements to this Australian film, down to the fact that uh, Jackie Chan's like brother-in-law, kind of or whatever, you know, from his 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 father figure is named Romeo Baggio, which I think is one of the great film names personally. <laughs> but yeah, in the first scene, Richard Norton introduces, he kills a woman who's an undercover cop or something. I don't know by throwing her into a huge pit in the middle of nowhere and then burying her using the dump bed of this enormous mining vehicle. And that just sets up that like, we are now aware this vehicle exists and is somewhere <laughs> in the vicinity of mm-hmm. Richard Norton's home. Just, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> is it a logical way to kill someone? No, it's like a fucking quarry. It's not like a grave by it. It's just like... Um, you can't just pour some dirt on someone in no, a, in a like quarry the, and be like, you're dead. It's like, no. No, they're just going to be like digging for iron <laughs> ore later and be like, ah, shit, bodies. <laughs> I guess it's his quarry. Maybe it's, I don't know. It's very confusing. But I mean, it's confusing, but it's absolutely in, in line yeah. with the logic. It is very yes. villainous to own a quarry, though. I will say, like, that's like one of the top five, like, it, logging companies and quarries. Really good if you're a villain in a movie. It's really funny also because uh, Giancarlo's distinction is that he's like a germaphobe and he doesn't want anyone getting anything dirty in his presence. And yet like 90% of his scenes of his like 
his home and everything around it is just in muck. <laughs> like he hasn't been developed at all. Doesn't make any goddamn sense. But I do, I do love the home because it's like from the very first shot of it, it absolutely looks like it was just they got a shit ton of timber and just balanced it together. Like the thing looks <laughs> like it was built to fall over, and God knows they deliver in the finale. They just. I love, and it was, I love the fucking uh, rope fight that leads up to it too. It's fucking great. With that, yeah, what, just a bunch absurd. of heavies fucking holding Jackie Chan back with ropes while he tries to <laughs> bare knuckle one cool, fight. Richard one cool Nor- thing I noticed this time watching it actually is um, Brad Allen, who sadly recently died, but was um, was member of the Jackie Chan stunt team and went on to become a pretty significant stunt coordinator of his own right and has a really great fight with Jackie Chan and Gorgeous in 1999, a little later than this. But Brad Allen, I believe this is his first film with Jackie Chan, and he's, I believe, is the guy who gets dumped ass first into a concrete mixer and spun around, which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, <laughs> touch within that film. What a great career. Uh, you Love study it. martial arts for, for all your life, and you hook up with the greatest martial artist in cinema for, like, you know, action stuff. And, you know, you absolutely, and I'm sure you're thrilled to do it. It's wonderful to just get dumped ass backwards into, into a machine and spun comically. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, moving on to the, the last movie we're going to cover today, and that's Who Am I? You want to talk about a shaggy dog movie. This is about as shaggy as it gets. And I I guess the thing that I love about this, but also the the thing that makes the movie so endlessly frustrating is it's, it's a series of contradictions. Uh, How do you make a movie where everything is so meandering and bloated, but the fight choreography is so tight and perfect? How do you make something that is so just like clearly expensive and shot on location and, and just all these like weird flourishes, but also bizarrely cheap and chintzy in other spots. It's, it's mind boggling. And well, we shouldn't use CGI in these movies. <laughs> no, God, Jesus Christ. It <laughs> looks good. I love, the, I love their weird distorting little tube of metal. that looks like it's pulled straight out of like a mid nineties video game. Like, yeah, yeah, this there's this another big fun. thing in the end where they're like, call in the agents. This is this overhead shot with like really bad like <laughs> digital composites of agents emerging from various scenery. I'm like that. that this looks like shit. This fucking. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go. I love. I love a lot. A lot of uh, green screen fire effects too. That's always fun. You know, you just kind of <laughs> those layer are those pretty over. good for sure. Really fun. Why does this movie involve a meteor, by the way? Like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I mean, one thing you could say about Who Am I is, uh, really, what does anything have to do with anything? I would guess. A a colossal pile of bullshit and and convoluted (laughs) nonsense that adds up to, like, 20 of the best minutes of Jackie Chan's entire career. That's what it is. I I would genuinely... An entire, like, 30-minute sequence where Jackie Chan has amnesia and he's adopted by an African tribe that <laughs> dresses in like fucking like Scottish tartans. Like what the fuck are they wearing? I, 
I, I would guess here, okay, so, so my theory, first off, okay, yeah, the, the African tribesman stuff, not great, but the 90s, in <laughs> it's not like 90s Hollywood was with Krippendorf's tribe and jungle to jungle, like, no, yeah. and, and the career of Michael Jackson, it wasn't like this wasn't all over the media everywhere, Oh, no, this, right? this is all the rage. And so, and, this, and so it feels to me like, Adam, you come back to like, why is there a meteor? You know, why the <laughs> hell is that the story? I genuinely think it's a meteor so that at the very end of the movie, Jackie Chan can throw the data into the into the river and say we must protect the environment to the to the camera. I think that's it. I think literally mm-hmm. it's reverse engineered to be about how we shouldn't meddle with power infrastructure because of yeah. elephants or something. Like it's it's just one of those and like the tribesman elements feels very much like that kind of wrong-headed sort of like we're all we can all get along perfectly. There's no real cultural differences. We'll all blend in beautifully and seamlessly we're all the same color really yeah, which was you like know a that 90s fucking, like african tribe child like crying because jackie chan is leaving him it's like what the fuck is going on and then <laughs> the idea that these are that this tribe is just completely backwards and like cut off from civilization there's a road like 20 feet from their fucking village Everything about this is insane. Which, like which, the first thirty the, minutes. Uh, did the tribesmen were they were the ones who had the night vision binoculars that he saw the fucking car with? I'm like, what the fuck is even? I this movie they, is took, they, they took him from the crash helicopter, Byros. Come on, yeah. Oh, what they found, oh, yeah, wow, yeah. That's, wow. it, that all fits together easily. Yeah, no, it's yeah. The, the whole uh, native thing like absolutely reeks of that like '90s colorblind like cure to racism thing. You know, which which mm-hmm. didn't work, unsurprisingly. And the well, 90s also, in retrospect, was super racist. So it's really it's really funny how that yeah. happened. God damn uh, well, this it, movie with its fucking we must save the world. And he fucking wa- <laughs> he, he rewires the criminals money to, like, save the children. Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. This movie is so fucking bullshit. <laughs> There's, there's really, yeah, who am I? There's absolutely a reason why I can never remember anything that happens in this movie except for the amazing final fight and, you mm-hmm. know, that there's some car stuff. I remember there's some car stuff in this movie and there certainly is. It is, uh, and, and yet, you know, at the same time, we talk about, like, the, the shaggy dog element. Like, this really, this and First Strike, which came just a little earlier, really pulls up as, like, James Bond tributes but they they have very similar energy for me to a lot of james bond movies that they have that kind of like star quota that kind of means that like everything that happens just ties back to because it's a james bond movie or because it's a jackie chan movie and there's just this great lazy kind of energy to them like like these who am i is an absolutely perfect sunday afternoon movie which is when i happen to watch it you know it's it's just like why is anything happening? It's like, look, it's look, they look at all this work they put in. Look at all these things happening. Mm-hmm. This is delightful. This is wonderful. It is. It doesn't make sense. No, not the, really. The things that they put thought and effort into are not things that anyone should put thought and effort into. They're like, okay, well, this takes place in South Africa, so we're actually going to shoot in Africa. That's been we're we're doing it. We're sh- we have to shoot on location. Okay, weird flex. Fine. That's that's fine. You want to shoot in Africa? We'll do it. And then you have this amazing opening action sequence that is absolutely ridiculous. They like drop a fucking like inflatable base on top of a tree canopy and then they assault a convoy with guns that shoot like 
I, I don't know what the fuck it is. Containment like nets foam? And, and goo. <laughs> they like Nickelodeon goo people and then yeah, shoot some of those just, little they're nets. They're just blasting gack at these motherfuckers to like kidnap scientists. And it's it's just so meticulously like thought out and, and so detailed. But then ultimately you're like, fuck, this didn't have to be this at all. <laughs> like, like the place that it eventually gets to, which is this, you know, Jackie Chan has amnesia and he's trying to figure out who he is. And also navigate this dangerous situation and and deal with this disc that he's running around with. It, it, none of it ties back. Same with the tribe stuff. And it is crazy, crazy how it, it, almost all the money here goes into the convoluted nonsense. But then you think about like, okay, what's the memorable stuff? What what, what could I really just draw on from this to, to get excited about? And it's the stuff that really saves the movie for me. And it's like, oh, they're in the Netherlands, and there's this funny fight where Jackie Chan is, like, goofing around with clogs and, like, throwing clogs at people's faces and, like, skidding past cars and clogs. And then you get to this, this final fight, this big final set piece. And what is it? It's Jackie Chan and two guys on a roof fighting, and then Jackie Chan, like, slides down the face of a building, and it's fucking cool. But... It really is. It's wild that there's so much in this movie, so much bloat where you're like, God damn it, I don't want any of this. And then he finds a way to just drag it back from the precipice of absolute dog shit just by having incredible action. It's like he's fucking with us. Is Jackie Chan fucking with me, Jack? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, again, I think James Bond is a really useful analog. Like a lot of the early Bond films in the 60s and 70s, like it was always about like, where are we shooting this time? And I think like there's a flex to this that, you know, I think they were at this point, it was it was it was becoming more and more true that he was becoming an international star. You know, he'd always been a huge star in Asia. This didn't or, even have, like, know. an American theatrical release, though. <laughs> it, it, no, it, but, but I think I think they, they felt like Rumble in the Bronx had a big American reception. And then uh, Mr. Nice Guy did okay. Like, it had American distribution. Um, and so, and and First Strike had come in between. And First Strike, First Strike weirdly enough, is actually was Jackie Chan's, I think might still be Jackie Chan's biggest Hong Kong box office film first strike a film that uh, even a lot of western jackie chan movies or fans have forgotten about or don't think about that often like that was the biggest hong kong movie until shaolin soccer came along like in the domestic box office it was huge you know but so i think a lot of this was like basically talking into existence jackie chan as an international superstar and part of that was like the flex of the money to just go places. And it was like, he's in Africa now. He's in Holland. Uh, he's in Australia. He's in, you know, Ukraine. And in First Strike, they shot in parts of, you know, Ukraine and, and Australia and a few other places, you know. like but, but the idea was like, he's expanding out to like, I mean, New York, except it was Vancouver and Rumble mm -hmm. in the Bronx famously. But, you know, he's, he's everywhere in the world. And I think that's an important part of the... The, the story they were building that built up to uh, Rush Hour, which actually made it true that it was like suddenly he was in America, but he was actually in the place in America he said he was, which is like a real honor in Hollywood. You know, so much of so much mm -hmm. of Hollywood is like doubled out in other like so much of America is doubled out in, in with cheaper locations. But, you know, Rush Hour was like actually in L.A., uh, you know, and that was like him arriving and being, you know, brought into the fold finally. But yeah, I, I think these films all 
kind of speak to the truth of it. Like there was the conception, the mindset that these movies are big movies and that's how you make them. And you, but you're right. I think ultimately the best stuff in Who Am I, like the most successful stuff, is basically just him and a couple of stunt professionals, like fellow you know martial artists doing zany shit, which absolutely they could have shot in a back lot in Hong Kong for fucking eight dollars or whatever, oh, you know, plus plus catering. Uh, that's you know. But, but you, you want to make a big that- movie, well, you might you might be, allocate some of that budget toward uh, fucking casting. Like, the first piece of trivia on this is Michelle Ferre never considered acting, but on the set of this movie, when she tried to interview Jackie Chan, he was struck by her and asked her to audition for the movie. No, that's not the way you do this, because Jesus Christ, this movie, and especially her, she's fucking abysmal. And there's so much acting in this movie where you're like, she's very cute, though. And it really, yeah. you really do feel like Jackie Chan kind of has a type in through all of, like the women oh, in yeah. the films. Despite there being no romantic interplay within the films, the starlets that kind of come through his films, like it really feels like he just saw her and she's like, oh, she would look really cute next to me in a movie. Yeah, I still do fair, question guess, the, the IMDb <laughs> trivia of that he, that she was interviewing him on the set of this movie and he told her to audition for this movie. Granted, based on how the movie actually plays out, that's actually maybe credible. Oh, they just sense. Really <laughs> put her, yeah, he's put her got in. 27 love interests already. Why not 28? Just throw <laughs> another just one in such, there. Like, this movie is, I don't know, maybe there's a, like, a, a dubbed ver- or a subbed version I could find somewhere. Maybe that's what Jack's watching. But no, it was shot in English. Yeah, the, that's the, unfortunate. That is fucking no. unfortunate because Jesus, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like every supporting actor, this like that opening plane scene where the guy's like, "I am Russian." <laughs> I'm like this is this is like some five dollar movie bullshit. Like I think is, one of the funniest things in the movie actually that, is where they go around. It's like what, like Jackie Chan's remember this elite unit everyone else in this elite unit is like 25 and yeah and it's the real league of nations everyone there's this from their own country they i don't know are they supposed to be affiliated with the cia if so why why are they a, a league of nations uh i i don't the movie doesn't make sense i mean it, it is no, it is about a, a chase for a cd that somehow relates to a magic exploding meteor uh, but you know, the, and, and also Jackie Chan has amnesia. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a mess, but yeah, I, yeah, I love the, the way it's like Jackie Chan has amnesia as a central tenet of the movie. And yet it doesn't really figure into a lot of it. Cause like all he needs to know is he's being pursued and he has right. to get away from them. And then at the end of the movie, it's just like, uh, the, yeah, the, the female CIA agent just basically just comes up and says, oh yeah, by the way, we, we have all your info. You can just check it back. Like, we'll just show it to you later. And then the credits roll and it's like, so who is he? Like, did it, it didn't matter yeah, at all. Like you no. couldn't figure any narrative reason to have that amnesia other than that he couldn't point directly at the bad guy and go, oh yeah, he's the guy who killed everyone. Well, th- Jack, the reason is, is the movie's called Who Am I? So <laughs> he's got I, amnesia yeah. and then you need, you need like all these who's on first jokes where it's just like, what's your name? Who am I? Oh, your name's Who Am I? <laughs> I mean, to be fair though, like, I, I, you know, and again, I do, I just enjoy that kind of like the, the lazy energy I keep referring back mm-hmm. to in these films, you know, like it's just, it's, it is funny. He shows up dressed as a tribesman, 
to, you know, a Japanese race car driver. Like, what are the chances of this in the vastness of the African <laughs> plains? He just finds Crasher, who was bitten by a snake. And he climbs a tree and he punctures and gives him a coconut IV. And then he numb, he chews up some stuff which numbs his mouth so he can't speak. So she just thinks no. he's speaking some African dialect, even though he is clearly an Asian man. Uh, you know, I mean, wonderful. it would take a genius to figure this out, let alone someone who's all, from all Asia. All skills he learned from the tribe that he's been <laughs> staying with. It's well, and, ironically, and honestly, it, it sounds like we're dogging on this movie, and we are. Yeah, sure. I don't fucking hate this. I don't no. hate. I, I would watch this a thousand times over a lot of the trash that we watch. No, it's this just is a perfect movie to stupidity. just have on. I love it. Yeah, perfect movie to just have on, and you just you know. You, you know, it's a perfect movie that you could just get up and walk over and do something else and come back to. Like, it's one of those yeah. movies that doesn't need a pause button. Exactly. And honestly, this that's is, kind this of a is beautiful the power thing. of cinema right here. <laughs> right. This is what you can this is what you can do when you create a great movie like this. You literally can throw it on and you can fucking vacuum and do the goddamn dishes and, and just still find great joy in this. Right. And it's you're like not the, it's actually like the, missing anything. Yeah, it's the beauty of like Kurostami talking about how, you know, it's OK to fall asleep during my movies. It's like a next, you know, an, a sub level of that is the Jackie Chan. It's OK to just leave for a while. Like, yeah. Come back in when Don't you're make done. Hot pocket, man. It's OK. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, I, I, I don't. It's is this a good movie? No, not really, but it's certainly fun to watch and it's got some great choreography. It's just baffling, <laughs> especially if we uh take Jack's supposition that this is like one of the last steps towards fully launching him as as like an international superstar. It's like uh you cast people who could act in your movie man. they cost a lot of money Adam. <laughs> they, they, they this, are expensive. this isn't a movie that was made for peanuts <laughs> no, no that, but that's Hong the thing. Kong it's like, i would have reconsidered going to south africa and maybe thought about casting people you see, you see and i think that's the thing because i mean they're still they're still absolutely in the mindset like the hong kong film market people are much more amenable to the, it's all going to get dubbed over into cantonese and mandarin anyway yeah, yeah that's so it doesn't true. it doesn't matter as much but it's much more important that they shoot in africa they went there and did that you know that's you know to me that's that's kind of like the mindset behind it but yeah i mean totally. good, that's fine good i take that English. globe trot but get rid of the <laughs> just cut out the, the vfx budget cut that down to fucking sure, zero it, <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely a thing where it's like enter the dragon got like john saxon whereas who am i got some other Ron guy. <laughs> Yeah, I do not know who the actors are. And I mean, I think it's fun. Like, honestly, I think the white guy casting in Hong Kong movies is some of the funniest shit in the world. <laughs> I love it. But it really works better when they do, like when you're watching the original Cantonese dialogue and they're dubbed over, which makes it even funnier. And it's like, and like there's routinely stories in Hong Kong you know, in the golden era in the 80s and the 90s, that they would just go out and they would find white people to be in their movies. They had, like, a stock of, like, seven or eight of them, you know, who could be brought in for dramatic roles. And then they had a couple more who were stunt performers who just wanted to work in Hong Kong because it was the place to work if you're a stunt performer. So they had, like, a stock of, like, white people through those. But then for any other roles, you know, and extra roles and things, they just had to, like, run out and just grab people off the street. Mm -hmm. And it really looks like that's exactly what they did because many of these people have clearly never acted in their entire lives before. Dude, I, not to besmirch the character of, of Ron's 
smirk jack too much but uh does he have other credits well, he has R. like R. 86 R. Credits. our homie died in oh. 2019 at the age of 69 he has a lot of credits but the fun thing is is like you've never heard of anything um until you scroll down to the mid 90s 1995 and you see that he played officer steel in the mangler <laughs> and then go. my favorite thing about him though is if you look at his IMDb profile, his photos that he has uploaded, like there's one that's a professional headshot. And then there's one that looks like he took a shitty, like I'm old and just got an iPhone type of selfie. And then another one that looks like just like your grandpa on a fucking Zoom call and just looking homeless as hell. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know anyone can upload photos to the IMDb, I'm yeah, pretty Yeah, but sure. these were clearly taken by him. Like, no one else could have taken these. Because <laughs> that's what I was thinking, too. I was like, oh, someone just took some shitty pictures of Ron Smurjack. No, Ron Smurjack took shitty pictures of Ron Smurjack. Uh, yeah, I, he's got a lot of credits, but I'm pretty sure these credits are roles as an extra, not the yeah. fucking lead villain and, and, in a major movie. It seems like his picture. only other big movie was something called uh, uh, Finding Lenny, which I've I've never heard of. Uh, so, <laughs> Like Finding Nemo, but in Holland or something? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a sort of soccer movie from 2009. Oh, Christ, no. Soccer movies are never... It's wild. Soccer is the most popular sport in the world, and I'm not sure anyone has ever successfully made a film about it that was any good. Yeah, I I have no idea. So, uh, yeah, I guess R.I.P. Mr. Smurzak. <laughs> we, we haven't been too kind to you here, but, no, you know... not a so, great eulogy. <laughs> well, look at this dead guy <laughs> shitty pictures on IMDb. What a pile of shit. Well, he, kidding, I, I'll say this. Mangler's Mr. Smurzak acted circles around the majority of this fucking cast. Yo, I will I... say, though... Okay, so... He's, he's in a movie I've never heard of, but I'm deeply interested in, and I want you guys to look this up. It's got Billy Drago. Uh, it's directed by someone named Boaz Davidson, which is just a cool name. It's called Lunar Cop. It's from 1995. Lunar Cop is all one word, in case you're wondering. Uh, and it's just got an incredible, incredible poster. And the synopsis is, a cop from the moon is sent to the Earth, now possessed by motorcycle-riding Mad Max-like inhabitants, to stop a serum from being released that he believes is going to destroy the Earth. And that seems pretty cool. So, uh, I, so the Earth is overrun by motorcycle lunatics, but the Earth is still not destroyed. Like the serum will be the final part. Yeah, yeah. It's, cool. Yeah, the serums. That's this the sounds problem. good. We like motorcycles, but serum, mm -mm, not so much. But speak, yeah, great, uh, great cover there for Lunar Cop. Highly recommend. Like, uh, we're we're back in like the Albert Pune podcast. <laughs> no, this <laughs> looks like this looks like Pune shit for sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, my I'm, favorite I'm thing about the Lunar Cop poster is actually well, it's got the moon, it's got explosions, it's got like you know everything that you would want from something like this, and then there's like this weird graphic where uh, it just looks like somebody like like Microsoft painted a fucking brick wall into the the top corner i don't understand this at all this is insane so uh yeah that's the real takeaway jackie chan good lunar cop great um, well, one thing i would say on the acting in this film as well i really enjoy um uh, mira yamamoto who plays yuki who's like the the other woman there are so many women in these films for no particular reason but she's great in it because honestly this is one of her earliest roles um i think it's got maybe her second film role and she's gone on to do a bunch of other stuff since um i've 
no idea how well known any of it is. But she's great because she just looks like she's just so happy to be there the whole time. Like every time anything happens, she just looks so just overjoyed like guys are shooting at her in her car and she's just smiling she's like don't worry this is great and honestly it kind of works even though it's i'm not sure exactly the direction she was given but um kind of kind of fun and you know mm. just want to shout that out yeah a couple mm. of high points here a couple of high points i have some, bad some... news for you by the way that's not a photoshopped in brick wall it is uh, simply a like a hollow foil sticker because this is a, just a scant VHS cover. <laughs> That's cool. That's fun. Wow. What about that weird square in the sky that, that doesn't seem to fit? Is that yeah, Photoshop? Uh, that looks like someone just covered up like a rating or something would be my guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I'm, yeah, the, the big takeaway again, Lunar Cop, why aren't you watching it? Why don't you fucking re re respect the name of Mr. Smearjack and watch? Does, it, does fucking... anyone want to give us twenty dollars so we go watch Lunar? Yeah, give me twenty dollars. I gotta, oh, I gotta shit, buy Mike, Lunar Cop. Holy crap, this How much you want to bet it's on fucking Tubi? Let's all right, Michael Tubi roulette. Pare and Billy Drago. Oh man, this is this is a royal. This is royalty of an entirely different lineage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hold on. Where is it streaming? Where is it streaming? If it's on Tubi, this we is win. not streaming. I, I, I'm going against you on this one. I don't see. It I, I love, I love that we just discover shitty movies in the middle of podcasts. In the middle of a podcast, now. yeah, that's 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 the way to do it. I feel like this, um, this this has the reek of something I would struggle to find on Cinemageddon. I'd be like, yeah, there's a one seat. I bet it's on YouTube in full screen. Yeah, it's also called Solar Force. You can get it on YouTube. This is it's it's around. It's around. Respect to Lunar Cop. Okay. Uh, well, hey, uh, we should probably wrap things up. We're going a little bit long, but you know, when you got Jackie Chan and Lunar Cops on the docket, what are you, what are you going to do? Uh, Jack, what are you putting over this week? That was a great question. I'm going to put over Lunar Cop, which is uh, an incredible film you might have heard of. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, I've, been, I've been trying to watch more movies, but you know what? I'm going to put over something super quick that I just someone posted randomly online and I end up watching it because it's like six minutes long, which is very easy to watch, which is a short film called Jumping, directed by Osama Tezuka. It's like a little animated short. It was, it was animated by... Um, uh, I struggle to think of his name now, but it's, it was literally animated by one guy. Uh, not Tetsuka, he directed, he got another guy to do the animation. It took him like three years to animate <laughs> for seven minutes of, of animation. Uh, but it's really, it's a really simple, goofy thing. It's literally, it's just a child starts jumping. It's like the, and the, it's like from a point of view shot of a child. And they just jump, and each time they jump, they jump a little higher and a little further, and they land in a different, weird place. And it's just got this great kind of like, kind of like a dream element to it. Like, it's a sort of a strange kind of a, you know, kind of like playing with time and location and stuff. It's just, it's just really pleasant. And it's six minutes. You can find it on YouTube. It's just called Jumping. And it's just, it's a really fun little thing. It does have some like super racist depictions of African tribesmen, but we've already covered that in this episode. So whatever. <laughs> and it was also always made in Japan in the 80s. So what the fuck do you expect to have happen? Like, sorry, that's how things work. Um, so, you know, with that warning, really lovely, odd thing. It's got, you know, e even within its seven minutes or whatever, it's got like some Easter eggs and goofy little things you can notice in the, the background of some detail shots and stuff. So, yeah, jumping, Osama Tetsuka. It's, it's great. It's anime, Adam. You'll love it. Oh, wow. Myros loves anime. Oh, Myros, yeah. what are you putting over yeah, this week? Enough. I, I, boy, about the only thing I watched was the, the first episode of that cyberpunk anime and... 
Uh, I was pretty neutral on that, so I, I, I don't know. A, a blender ownership. <laughs> I bought a blender. I guess you that's, being neutral on anime is like a, a ringing endorsement. Yeah, you yeah, a blender? That's, that's fair. A, a blender you, ownership. What have you been, that, that, what you, have you been blending? Uh, well, I, I use it for cooking mainly, you know. It's, uh, it's, uh, Making some soups? What's going on here? Are you I, one I made, of those guys who just a, want to dice an onion? You're, you're throwing it in a blender and do the extra washing up? Well, I'm not much of an onion man, so yeah, if I, I, if I want the flavor of onion without having to experience uh, the textural malady of an onion, then uh, yeah, I, I will blend it. I, I, I made chili this weekend, which I had been putting off for, for, for that very reason. I just, uh, I feel like it's something that really requires some, some pureeing. And, uh, now that I have a blender, boy, that really came together nicely, I must say. So, uh, if you don't own a blender, it's not just for daiquiris, people. Get yourself one. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you spring for like an expensive model? Are you fucking with like a Vitamix right now? What's going on, man? No, no. It's just one of these, uh, fucking, you, you get it at the old infomercial. The bullet, baby. No, they oh, the magic bullet. If you if you jump up to the neutral bullet, it's actually quite uh, quite well regarded for the price point. So that's what we want. Good that's to know. Good. Thank you for doing that blender research. Um, yeah, we already own one. I don't know what kind it is though, but I feel like we've owned it for forever and we use it. So that's but the I, value I of this podcast, it man. Yeah, like, I, you know, people are like, "Oh, I want to hear some idiots talk about movies," and and then you get you get some Blender recommendations at the end. You, you got to get that nine hundred watt model. That's the one you got to go okay. with. My, my issue is always that I never bullet. use. I never use it because just it's so much extra washing up. I don't know. Just I I hate cleaning blenders. But they need to make a blender that's just completely smooth, like no ridges. No mm-hmm. nooks or crannies. See, that's like the thing com- with these these sort of bullet these smoothie blenders, if you will, is that they they kind of blend into like a a glass recept. Like it's almost like it's meant to drink out of. There's not really any crannies per se. I I found oh. the cleanup to be quite quite low labor. I'll say that. Interesting. Right. <laughs> this is this is where things are getting good. Shit. This is, we yeah. <laughs> keep it rolling, Steve. What's your favorite kitchen appliance? Uh, well, that's that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I do need to get some new <laughs> kitchen knives if anybody has any recommendations. Uh, I, I think I'm actually going to put over a movie. I watched some good shit other than Jackie Chan this week. Uh, one of the things I watched was uh, The Leopard Man. Hey, you need some Jacques Tournier in your life? Maybe you do. We're almost to spooky season. Tony A is Turner. <laughs> Tony, 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 Tony A. Tony A. Tony B. Yeah, no, it's it, Leopard Man's good. It's uh, it's like an hour long. It's legitimately like I think it's like an hour and six minutes. But uh, it's it's crazy. It's just pure atmosphere. Uh, beautiful looking movie and uh, loads of fun. Good good for your spooky season. And you might get upset because you're gonna look at the the titular leopard. You say that's uh that's a fucking panther. But just you know, movie magic. Get over it. Fucking get over yourself. The, the, the average punter in the 1930s didn't know the difference between a panther and a whatever else. Sure. And, and I think I think if we're getting down to brass tacks here, like technically, I think a panther is like a variation on a leopard. So we, we could kind of, you know, we could fudge it a little bit, but whatever. Watch, watch <laughs> the leopard, man. It's good. French people know what they're doing. Also, shout out to uh, Jean-Luc Godard for just like offing himself intentionally because life is not worth living anymore, but also doing it shortly after the queen passed away so he could just basically take a one final shit on the English, uh, which I respect <laughs> immensely. Very French way to go. Probably the Frenchest way to go. So 
Um, yeah, nothing but respect there. Uh, other than that, I think that pretty much wraps things up. So yeah, if you enjoyed this podcast, hey, this podcast was brought to you by literally a patron who gave us money to cover this topic. So if there's something that you want to hear us talk about, you can make us talk about fucking anything. Just give us the right amount of money. And at the highest tier, that's what you get. You get to dictate an episode once a year. You, yes, you, dear listener, can tell us what to, to do. And that's exciting for you, I'm sure. Uh, and then at lower tiers, well, shoot, if you donate a $5, you get your name read out on air and you get to participate in uh, a voting process that can also dictate some future content, which we did an episode last month that was patron voted. And if you donate at any level, if you're like $5 too rich for my blood, that's fine. Because you donate at any level, and if you live in the continental United States, I'm going to send you a movie from my personal collection. And that's exciting. You don't know what you're going to get, but you're going to get something. Maybe you'll get Lunar Cop on VHS. How fun would that be? To have that show up in your mailbox. Probably I mean, if you own that, I don't think you'd be sending it out, frankly. No, I, that's a keeper for sure. But, you know, if I had multiple copies, it's possible. Anything's possible. Uh, Myros, who are our $5 patrons, by the way? Well, $5 and above. Uh, we have Koufax Kropotkin. Uh, this is his episode, by the way, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, we also have CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And yeah, if, uh, if you want to, there's a link in the podcast description, and that'll take you to our Patreon page, and there you can, you can give us money. How fun would that be, to give us money? I would enjoy it immensely, and uh, that helps pay for stuff. Got to keep the lights on around here. We got to, you know, pay for hosting, pay for various podcast expenses, uh, pay for Adam Myros's expansive firearm collection. I heard you're you're moving into tactical knives. Are, are the rumors true, Myros? Do you own <laughs> tactical knives now? I mean, what constitutes the tacticality in a knife? Jack is a uh, is a blender a tactical knife in a way. If you were a good enough tactician, yes. Mm. Yeah, I feel like mm. any knife really could be. Considered tactical, in which case, yes, I own several tactical knives. Oh, According yeah. to Unfriended One, a blender can indeed be used as a tactical knife. Exactly. You just have to die and hack your friend's Skype call later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've all been there. Sure. Uh, so yeah, uh, we, we, need, we need money for various things. So yeah, if you could throw us a couple bucks, greatly appreciated. Appreciate all your support. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. We love getting emails from you guys, and uh, we love recommendations for future episodes, uh, feedback, whatever you got for us. That'd be cool. And also, you can tweet at us, at optimismvaccine, and we'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So with that, I think we're done. And there's no Jake, so there's no last words. So I don't know. Go fucking find a torn a lunar cop.